and we're ready to start John 6. So nice okay. that we got through five chapters of John this summer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, it's what we learn, not how much. Right, I suppose that's true. So, uh, let's... Um, Let's go to verse 14, so uh, verses 1 to 14. And Peter, would you read for us, please? 1 to 14. Oh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. So what do you think? Oh, this is a fascinating passage, see, because... In John, uh, John in, in verse 1, all John says is that they crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, but we know from uh, the other Gospels that their destination was Bethsaida. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that I, I see fascinating about this is this great crowd. What is this great crowd? We know that there were... 5,000 men, but there were also women and children, because we know that from the other Gospels. Mm -hmm. And the Sea of Galilee is about the same size as the large section of Clear Lake. Almost the same size, Sea of Galilee being just a little bit bigger by only a couple of miles. So, the evidence suggests that they left out of Tiberias, destination Bethsaida, so we see this great crowd. They must have seen the boat. Can see the boat. It's not going to be that far offshore. They see the boat exiting, heading out towards the like in the northeast direction. And so now this great crowd sees this boat slowly moving. So they go through the mountainsides, seeing where this boat's going, and 
with remarkable agility. Good morning. Good morning. With remarkable agility to the point that they get there before the boat does. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, is fascinating. Um, knowing the distances on the large section of Clear Lake, you could visually see, <clears throat> and this uh, area was much more hilly, so there was mount it was a little bit more mountainous yeah. than the flatland area of Clear Lake. Yeah. But so you could see up from the mountains, you could see this boat slowly moving, and they're probably three, four miles offshore at the most, maybe four and a half miles out, which you can see with the naked eye. And so they're watching this boat going, and it just fascinates me, the agility of this great crowd moving. Yeah. Of course, keep in mind two things. Uh, the downside, they have sandals to walk in, not a nice uh, walking shoes or boots. Um, they, um, they have these long gowns and robes that would seem to me to hinder walking. Um, but, on the other hand, they're used to walking. They walk everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and so, to go from one town to another, which might be the distance of two or three to six miles, uh, is nothing in a day. To go there and come back uh, is nothing. They're fast walkers. But, what do you think about Jesus testing um, my Bible says, um, in 5, it says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? I think about that, like, yeah, too, about the crowd, and that's humanity coming towards Jesus, and he sees them, and he wants to feed them spiritually. But, I mean, he says to Philip, I, when he says that he's testing him, I think he's testing him about, like, what, type of food too he's like what are we going to feed them because they're hungry mm -hmm. so I think about that too those people were and maybe maybe thought. Philip missed the larger meaning Jesus yeah. had about <laughs> like, oh, the wow. nature of the food well and Philip was one that was from Bethsaida mm. that's true but, and that's why Philip says um, or Jesus says to Philip you're the host mm. because you're from mm. this place where are we gonna buy? Where are we gonna find food? But what do you think about about Jesus testing him like that? Jesus knew what he was going to do. He didn't need. To, he wasn't asking a question out of need. So it, it it is it a genuine question when he's testing him. What he's giving him opportunity to think about it and to learn. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Oh, certainly. That's 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 great. So so um. It's sort of like teaching, huh? <laughs> I don't ask questions of my students because I don't know the answer and I want them to tell me. Well, and it's also part of uh, the development of character. <clears throat> like everything that, that we do and study, it's all about the development of character. So that's probably... So there, are there any other times in the Bible that you can think of where Jesus raises a question? And I think both Old and New Testaments. Jesus raises a question or makes a statement that uh, doesn't mean quite what it sounds like it means, but he's testing. Kim, can you think of any? I was just... 
there's lots of times when he asks questions. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, and, and the disciples are bumfuddled, um, obviously him knowing the answers. So I would say even like in his parables, he, you know, he'll state something uh-huh. that isn't uh huh. Yeah, he sometimes ends in a question. What will he? What will the king do to those people? <laughs> uh, Who do you yeah, think I am? You know, how do you? How, later, <laughs> and then later they say, "What did that mean?" Uh huh. Yeah, and I think of, I think of the time when they throw a question at him, and he says, "Well, how do you read the scriptures? What do you think?" Yes. The other thing is that they'll give him a choice. And they'll say, well, if you do this or if you do this, and he takes the middle road, (laughs) which is great because then it shows us that we have another option. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the Old Testament. Can you think of any place in the Old Testament where Jesus tests someone? Where does does Jesus, we think of him as God in the Old Testament. Well, where does he test people in the Old Testament? At the burning bush. Yeah. Um, at Mount Sinai. Yeah. At Mount Sinai is what I was thinking of. Step aside, Moses, so that I can get angry at these people. I mean, isn't that almost... I know God was very serious at that point, but it almost sounds like a teasing kind of question, because why would God need some human being to step aside so he could get angry. I mean, if God's angry, he's going to be angry, and no human being can stop him. But he's testing Moses. Do you really love these people? I get that from patriarchs and prophets, actually. Mm -hmm. God is not angry at that point, but he's testing Moses to see how Moses is going to respond. Would he be more hurt at that point rather than... Oh, he totally grieved. But see, that's that's the nature of God's angry anger. It's a grief. It's not hot anger. God's anger is never at someone. It's always for someone. Well, there is a section where the Lord was going to put Moses to death in Exodus uh, 4. Yeah. There's, there's that section. Do you think God would really put someone to death for something they didn't realize they hadn't done? Don't know. But what we do know is that once everything was found out, then uh, Moses' wife went ahead and circumcised his son, and then... Uh, my my perception is that the Bible, and of course this brings us to the, the issue of inspiration, the words are not inspired. Ellen White makes that very, very clear. That uh, the words are human. And therefore they don't bear the, the logic, the rhetoric, and, and the uh, meaning that God would give them. So you have, uh, and if you need a reference for that, that's exactly. a selected, selected Messages, Book 1. So 1SM, pages 18 to 22. Because we go through this in a religion, mm-hmm. classes, mm-hmm. and I don't know what to refer to. Yeah, Selected Messages, Book 1, mm-hmm. uh, pages 18 to 22. It may start actually in page 16, but the, the heart of it is, is actually uh, 19, 20, 21. 
22. And, and so what much of what we see in the Old Testament is from ground zero. You're looking at events as the human being saw them from ground zero. You're not looking at it up above from God's perspective. And, and so, to all intents and purposes, if, if God appears threatening to Moses, or there's this horrible, dense darkness, or, or there's, there's something scary, uh, it must mean that he's angry. And, and so, um, and of course, this is perennial throughout ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Canaanite religions, uh, that um, any evil event that happens to you, God, the gods are angry. So... We have to contextualize scripture in order to understand uh, just what is happening here. Uh, so this testing, this testing people isn't isn't an, a disingenuous act. It's it's a teaching mode. You notice that they had twelve baskets left over of fragments. Had the disciples eaten during this time? It doesn't mention them eating. It doesn't mention them. They were qu- uh, busy giving out the food. Yeah. And by the time they gave it all out and everybody had eaten and there were f- these fragments, one that's page. what they had to eat. <laughs> yeah, one basket each. So what did Jesus eat? It looks like he didn't eat at all, one which is each. quite typical of him, you they know. The Samaritan woman that we read about in chapter 4, yeah. Jesus never eats. He, has, he says, I have food you don't know about. Do we know how big those baskets were? What can we estimate? I would four, guess. Four I would guess size. about this big around. I think they were round baskets. I don't think they were the nice long ones that Harry Anderson painted in the Bible story books. I think they were more like that. Because <laughs> twelve twelve baskets still seems like a lot. I mean, I think that'd be a lot even just for one one basket would probably be a lot for one person to eat. Yeah. So I think that it also kind of shows that like they. Um, demonstrated I guess not necessarily faith because they saw it but they I guess trusted him and they continued to trust him to continue to provide food for all of them and so he provided food for everybody and then he provided enough food for his disciples as well afterwards like they and, and then they had the opportunity of sharing their food with Jesus didn't they I mean if there's more than enough for yeah. them to yeah, eat they should. shouldn't they share it with Jesus yeah. and then this is this is one of those times where where there's that opportunity, you, you know, you think of what the disciples missed in, uh, in chapter 13 of John, when it's time for washing the feet, and they don't wash Jesus' feet. Think of the opportunity they had to wash Jesus' feet. Okay, let's um, move on to uh, verse 15, and let's read... Verse 15 uh, through 21. John six fifteen through 21. I'll let you read that, John, when you get right. it. Okay, thank you, sir. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. And Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. 
But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. That's awesome. I know. <laughs> he gets into the boat, and immediately they're at the shore. No more rowing. With Jesus in your boat, no effort. <laughs> That's beautiful. It is. Um, what about this making him king by force? Well, the crowd was thinking in earthly terms. Five, 5,000 people, 5,000 men. Is how many contingents in an army? Good question. I don't know what depends. the size of the contingent is. Yeah, depends on your definition. It's about a legion. I think I, I think um, a, a, a contingent. Uh-huh. I, I'm I'm re- trying to remember from Old Testament terminology. Right. In Old Testament times, a contingent was anywhere from fourteen to thirty some people. Uh-huh. So you have a lot of troops. Yeah. In this crowd, yeah. and and you think of what's going through the people's mind. You know, he can heal the wounded, yeah. he can raise the dead. Yeah. So the people that are killed in war, he can raise them up again to fight some more. And he, and one of the problems of perennial problems of armies in all ages, including the American Revolutionary War, yeah. is lack of food. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, and and now the last piece of this whole thing of kingship has been put together. And, and keep in mind, anciently, kingship, one of, the, uh, one of the arenas in which kingship arose was the need for someone strong and powerful to lead the troops into battle and to conquer. So everything's in place for this to happen. We can get, we can go, we can conquer the world. We can be, we can be Rome to the world. And Jesus withdraws. Now, the other gospel writers point out that Jesus dismisses the crowd. And, he, and the suggestion is made in Desire of Ages that he did it so decisively and so firmly that no one dared disobey. Uh, so, so it's like this current, rapidly moving downstream, and you turn it around <laughs> and send it up. Stream, you know, it's it's that kind of of uh, amazing uh, resistance. It's interesting in verse fourteen that they say, "This is truly the prophet who's to come into the world," but then they try to do something that's so against all the scriptures in the Old Testament that's so against his character. They never got, they never got past the power. I mean, you can you can still to this day read the Old Testament differently than we do. Yeah. If you pick and choose, if you have selective, not selective memory, but selective cho- uh, reading, yeah. you can you can think that the Old Testament condones kingship and power and force and yeah. even tyranny. You have to actually read the Old Testament's narrative and read it all the way through to get the other picture. And of course, these people had a disadvantage. None of them had Bibles. So they were only told or read. So all they heard was what was the chosen selections of the rabbis mm-hmm. on Sabbath morning. That's the only contact they had with Scripture. 
um, unless now it's possible that some of the wealthier had uh, at least portions of scripture in their homes um, because it was common of course for every male to be trained in the rabbinic schools so uh, you remember that they wondered how Jesus knew letters having never learned how does he never studied under a rabbi yeah. so there's there's all these factors uh, in this situation, but this is this is one of the few times when when Jesus really asserts his divine nature and resists, and the point at which he resists the most strongly is the point of wanting to make him king. And then they get into this boat, and of course the disciples are just gung-ho. The moment has arrived. The Messiah is going to assert himself, and he's going to take the throne of David. And they're going to be on the right hand and on the left, and they're going to have all this riches, these riches, and they won't have to work so hard, and they can lord it over people. And Jesus tells them, get in the boat and go across the sea. That you get from other Gospels, again, telling the same story. And that must have been the hardest, most bitter moment they had had yet with Jesus. All the, he, he, just, he took their, their glowing dreams and, and, and misworship. And I use the word misworship, which isn't a word, but I use that because their basis for worshiping him was not right, mm-hmm. was not holy. He takes that, and it was like he just... Quenches that light, that glow, and sends them across the, the sea, and they're, they're really in a dark mood. How, how could he do this to us? Why? 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 And, and they're rowing in the sea, and then Jesus watches them from the mountaintop where he's gone to pray. And it's and dark. And it's, and it's dark. dark. And the wind is blowing. And the water's got rough. And he, he watches that boat. And he can, he, can, he can detect the mood as it darkens and darkens. And when it's at its darkest moment, he starts walking across the water. And they're terrified when they see him. <laughs> he must have been illuminated. Right? That's what I think, too. So they think this is a ghost. <laughs> you know how it is when you go in a cemetery at night Wait, we don't have that now but in, in older time periods when they buried people closer to the surface and they buried them not in coffins that were sealed but in maybe wooden boxes that easily fell apart under the earth the phosphorus from the bones emits light you get these sparks of light Mm-hmm. in cemeteries and they're spooky places because the ghosts are there you know <laughs> that's, that's, that's the uh, ancient perception so Jesus comes glowing across the water and all they think, think of is the, their ghosts and they're, they're terrified and of course when you're in a dark mood and not trusting God you get spooked very easily so there they are Terrified, and he says, "It's I." And they recognize his voice. Don't be afraid. Out. We have another part of the story from the other Gospels. You remember that part of the story? 
Peter. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter walks out on the water. Oh, this is great. <laughs> and he looks back to look. Look! <laughs> and down he goes. It's amazing that just that one moment of like self-pride or um, boasting and taking your eyes off of of who Jesus is immediately causes us to fall. Well, you know, you know, this whole this whole uh, story is really about that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The desire to make him king is a pride thing. Yeah. The desire to conquer the Romans is a pride thing. Oh, Kim. Kim. Is it is it also going back to what you said earlier about the testing? Yeah. You know, when we're in really dark places, uh, he'll test us then as well. Could be. In a, in a sense, everything Jesus does is a test because it it tests whether we're going to respond. So so this whole story is about. Pride, power, force, control, versus meekness, kindness, gentleness. And Jesus exhibits the latter. The disciples want the former. And so there's this conflict. And Jesus lets them work it out while they row. Rowing is a very good exercise. And, and you know that. The best thing to do when you're very upset is to take out and run as hard as you can. Or do something very vigorous, very vigorous exercise. What, because then it's, it's a science, because uh, when a person gets really upset, angry, uh, frightened, um, uh, even deeply sad, but especially angry and frightened, the adrenaline rush is so strong that if you don't exercise to ma- to get rid of that adrenaline and calm it down, it's it's, it's very dangerous to the body. Um, and and what it does is do all kinds of harmful things, uh, both men- uh, mentally and physically. So Jesus lets them row it out. And they rode for three or four miles, John says. That's a lot of rowing. I imagine they had to take turns. Especially in bad conditions. Yeah, that's true. Yes. You're rowing nowhere. Strong wind is blowing. They're having to go against the wind. A little parable there. Going against the wind (laughs) is going against myself. So uh, let's go to 22, to verse 24. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which Jesus had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people, therefore, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. I like the way that version is worded. 
But which, which, which one is that? I don't know. I grabbed this off the shelf. It's, 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 doesn't that sound nice, the way it's worded? It's the New King James Version. Okay, well, that was, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not much here to uh, digest, is there? It's kind of a bridge passage uh, between the passage we just read and the passage that we're going to read next. So why don't we go ahead and, uh, Christian, would you read 25 to 34? And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him, whom he has sent. They said, therefore, to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus, therefore, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. This is like the woman at the well. <laughs> and Nicodemus. <laughs> and Nicodemus. We take him literally. Yeah. Or just run out right after Jesus reads the scriptures um, concerning him. And then they ask for a sign as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why are they so into a sign, do you think? Show us again. They just saw a huge miracle. Satan at work. Enough. I mean, seriously, it's, they had already seen what he had done. And now why are they asking again? We aren't like that, are we? <laughs> Israelites, I mean, they had just come through the uh, Red Sea, and no sooner had they gotten through and saw this miraculous sign than crumbling. Hmm. I think it's, you know what you were saying with, the work of Satan, like it's kind of like that sensationalism, so to speak, that they just constantly want to be like aroused and to. Isn't it? Isn't it lust? Yeah. A form of lust. Mm-hmm. When when we when we seek power, we're never satisfied. We never get enough. It's like a cartoon I have. I collect religious cartoons, <laughs> and uh, haven't. You know, we're not into cartoons as much as we used to be. <laughs> Back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, cartooning was important. Um, but there's this cartoon of a king and a queen and outside his palace window. His subjects have knives, pitchforks, and what have you, and they're massing themselves around in revolt against his tyranny. And he looks like a tyrant. I mean, his face is just very angry. And he says, if only I could force them to love me. Power, power is never satisfied. Mm-hmm. Desires for justice uh, are never satisfied. 
and I, and I think the classic story for me on that is um, Debbie Morris's book, the uh, Forgiving the Dead Man Walking. Anybody here seen the movie Dead Man Walking, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or or read the book Dead Man Walking by uh, Sister Prejean? Did you all, were you all here when she did her um, colloquy? I don't think they were. Oh, that was that was quite a few years ago. Yeah, that was amazing. Was um, my first or second year. Well, that story is retold by Debbie Morris, who was one of the victims of the man mm-hmm. who was put to death. Mm-hmm. She and her boyfriend are actually, I believe, featured in the movie. Ah, uh, okay, right. But they didn't die, uh-huh. like the movie project, projects. I'm not sure they're featured. It, the movie's very distorted from what actually happened. But she and her boyfriend were out at this park where these men stalked people. And he, they forced them into the back of their car, drove over the state line into Alabama from Louisiana, uh, into some woods. They took her boyfriend out, shot him in the back of the head, left him for dead. And then they took her in the car, drove back... I believe, into Louisiana and drove around for two days uh, taking turns raping her in the back seat. And uh, this was just after uh, the girl whose last name was Holloway was murdered by these men. It was like two weeks later or something. They were still at large. They drove her to a shack at one point and things got really dark. She could tell they were plotting her death. And she just prayed. And, and uh, you need to know that while she was in the backseat of the car, when they were driving around, she would ask them personal questions. She would try to draw them out to talk about themselves. She would um, try to find some humanity in them. For some reason, they didn't kill her. They put her back in the car, and they drove over the state line again, I believe, into Alabama, to a town where her uncle lived, and let her off about oh, several blocks from that town, from that house where her uncle lived, and drove off. She went to her uncle's house. The police came. She directed them where to go to find her boyfriend. She expected him to be dead. He was still alive. That's amazing. They took him to the hospital, of course. They, I think they had to do surgery to extricate the bullet. Um, but it had changed his mind so much. The, the, bu- the bullet brain injury, the, the trauma uh, that they ended up breaking up. She had a very weak family background, family system, divorce, um, dysfunction, and so she had very few people to turn to. And she turned to alcohol. She became uh, an alcoholic and, and, and almost suicidal. I mean, just extremely depressed. It was the, the most horrible time in her life. And one day she wandered into a church and found Jesus. Completely transformed her life. She got off um, alcohol and uh, became, got married happily. Uh, became a successful teacher and uh, teaching students that were at risk. Wow. And um, 
the end of the book, she she tells her story without sensationalism. There's nothing sensational about reading her book. It's a dark story, but but you don't feel caught up in, in drama at all. She's not a drama queen about the way she tells it. At the end of her, her story, she told how the Holloways com- did nothing but lobby for the death penalty in Louisiana. They went to every death penalty. They, they were constantly seeking justice, seeking justice. They couldn't get enough. They were never satisfied. And she would call Debbie and say, why don't you join us? We're going to the courthouse for such and such a, an event. And, and why don't you join us? And Debbie would turn, her, turn them down. And she said, Debbie said, I noticed that the more they sought justice, the less satisfied they were. And then she said, it wasn't, and she said, you know, people ask me why I take the response I do of forgiveness toward these men. And her, her testimony in court led to their execution. Uh, and so she wasn't against a penalty, but what she was against is that kind of satisfaction, the retaliation, the revenge, the, etc., she said, some people wonder why I don't seek more justice. But she said, we don't sing amazing justice. We sing amazing grace. Mm-hmm. And she said, justice did nothing to heal me. Forgiveness did. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we have this, these backstories before we get to this chapter of, of Jesus trying to get them to think in terms of the heavenly as opposed to the earthly, which is concrete and which is power-based and which we want, we want, we want, we want, we want more and more and the more we have, the less satisfied we are. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to get us to that point. He got Nicodemus in John 3. God so loved the world that he gave. That is where satisfaction is. So here are these people who got filled up on bread that Jesus miraculously provided. And they're not satisfied. Because why? Because that's what they're looking for. That's all they want. So Jesus, once again, is trying to say, you know, (laughs) the real bread you need to satisfy you comes from heaven. Okay, give it to us. We... We want out of work. We don't want to have to work anymore. If you give us all the bread we need, we don't have to work so hard. And Jesus says, you know, if you had the bread from heaven, that's what gives life. And you don't have to work so hard for it. You think about it. When I get so busy that I forget my heavenly companion. It's hard work. If I have him beside me and, and he's there transforming every moment, my work isn't hard. In your boat? <laughs> In my boat, whatever. Yeah, just like <laughs> my boat sits at my desk. <laughs> and then the sign business. I'm not sure we fully understand that. You know, I, I think um, 
for us it is a little easier because they were looking forward to Christ's ministry, you know, the, the Redeemer coming, and we have that. Mm-hmm. So, like, we have, we, I mean, we don't always follow it, but we have this template, if we do choose to yield to it, that gives us a huge advantage over people of that time. I think you're right, John, but I'm troubled by the fact they had Jesus right there with him, and we don't. Yeah, yeah, right. But, you know, everything hadn't been fulfilled. You, you, know, you know, it was still in process, you know. Do you know, there are a lot of Christians today who are exactly where these people are. They're wanting the real, the the concrete bread. They're wanting the concrete power, and they they envision when Jesus comes back, he's going to wield a sword. Well, that's one thing that's probably good about this election cycle. I mean, look at the choices. You know, if you're if 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 you're depending on those two, you know, I mean, God bless them. God, but one of them is going to be president, and God bless them. Neither are my choice, but God bless them. But. I'm I'm crazy if I'm depending on one of them to make my life what it's supposed to be. I mean, that's between me and the Lord and, and trying to be a good person around others and serving. I think I think we're going to be totally disillusioned with power before we get to here. Yeah. If we have any have any sense about us. Mm-hmm. And I I mean there's a lot of people who don't have any sense. Mm-hmm. Um but if we have any thoughtfulness. Kim. I I have a question. Um, and part of it is because I'm reading your book. <laughs> is there a, a flip side to all of this power and the anger or the frustration or all of that? Because the, the, the thing that I see is, oh, he's doing these miracles. I just want to be around him because all the rest of the world is chaotic and harsh and whatever else uh, as a disappointment I just want to be around him because and he's always doing these good things so I'm just wondering is there a flip side um, of equal weakness if you want to call it to where we almost want to cop out because we want to be in his presence because we don't like you were saying earlier we don't have to work so hard let's let's talk about abuse an abuser is created out of weakness. They want power equal to that weakness. They want power equal to their abuser. And, and, and there's never a time in, in the Jewish history when they felt so abused and so oppressed by Rome. And, and the whole system was oppressive. I, I think you may remember that I talked earlier about how everything worked. The fishers that actually did the fishing were the lowest paid people. And they were beholden to the fishermen who were the brokers who owned the business and who had people above them who had to pay the bulk of what even they made. And, and those people, um, it was a client-patron society. Uh, and in those people... Uh, had to pay the higher-ups from them. And so there was, it was a horribly oppressive system. You could not get ahead. You could not climb out up the ladder. There was, you were stuck. Where your parents were is where you were. So, so you have that, and you have these uh, victims of abuse who want power equal to that. And Jesus has to gently pry their fingers off the power. 
and say there is a greater power, but it, it, it addresses your weakness in a totally different way, and that is the power of love. And, and I think that's what's going on here. The, their, their desire for a sign, their, their lust for a sign, perpetually, is their insecurity of not feeling they ever have the proof. It's never, Jesus is never right enough because he doesn't address what they think they want. And, and when we want someone to give us power, we really want control over them. We want to use them. And that's what they're wanting with Jesus. They want to use him to get out of him what they think will satisfy them, and it never will. So they just keep milking and milking and milking. That's, that's the, the abuser-friendly kind of society that, that promotes that. So I, I think that's the mechanism that's going on, and Jesus is trying to give them something greater. This is a great place to stop, and next week we're going to unpack where Jesus is going with this. This is a very important chapter. So why don't we stop there? And uh, let's have our closing prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are in a a way so gentle with us and are grasping for what we think we need, but which is anything but what we need. What we need you and the power of your love in our lives to satisfy us, to quench our thirst, to give us bread, and to give us the, the kind of self-sacrificing life that you lived on earth. We pray for this. We pray for this in our lives and in our ability to relate to other people. And we thank you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.